Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and this week my guest is Rachel Maddow. The MSNBC host is out with a new book about Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew. It's called Bagman, The Wild Crimes, Audacious Cover-Up, and Spectacular Downfall of a Brazen Crook in the White House. Bagman, which was co-written by Rachel Maddow and Mike Yarvitz, is based on the hit podcast of the same name. Then there's her primetime program. The Rachel Maddow Show, which airs at 9 p.m. on MSNBC, is having a big year. It averaged more than 3 million viewers in 2020 and is on track to end December as the most watched show on cable news. But Maddow's success comes at a time of uncertainty for the news industry. The Trump administration is coming to a predictably chaotic close, and there are fears that what comes next will not sustain the ratings boom seen in the last five years. For this week's episode of The Interview, I spoke to Rachel Maddow about what's next for her show, whether Trump will remain a pervasive figure in media and politics, her new book, and what she thinks of the competition, from Fox News to CNN. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Super happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start out on a somewhat personal note. Uh, you were off the air for a few weeks in November and revealed uh, that it was because of your partner of 21 years, Susan, had contracted COVID and ended up having a pretty serious case. So first of all, how are you both? And uh, has Susan recovered? Thank you for very much for asking. Um, Susan has mostly recovered. She's having um, the thing that I think is true, not for everybody. It seems like COVID affects everybody differently. But for most mm. people that we know who've had considerable cases, meaning considerable symptoms, there's kind of a long tail of the symptoms. And so yeah. she's definitely still struggling with that stuff. She's a very active person. She's very stubborn and determined and to still have like the fatigue and the, you know, sometimes the cough and the aches and the headaches and all those things, they come back. COVID is a, it's a beast. I mean, hmm. she's going to be okay. And she's, we're no longer worried that she's, you know, really seriously at risk, but it's still a terrible thing. And so I, I will just reiterate to anybody watching this, like you don't want to get it. Um, mm -hmm. And you don't want anybody you love to get it. I, I'm fine. I have been negative the whole time, which is a miracle. Okay, great. Um, but it's been scary to see her go through that up close. Your commentary on it when you came back to the show, I thought was really important, just, you know, emphasizing how serious it is. And I think that's one of the most important things that I don't think people realize that much is that it's not just the flu with a higher death rate. Yeah. There's, it's like, a, it's a very serious illness if you get it and survive, you know, you can have this weird long tail where you're suffering all these odd symptoms and stuff. And we really don't know, you know, how long that lasts or anything. And um, we don't even know all the organs and stuff that it affects. I mean, people yeah. have cognitive issues that are long-term, people have lung issues, people have circulation issues and blood clot issues. I mean, like you don't, you don't want to compromise your long-time prognosis with the disease, but also your lifespan in terms mm. of damaging yourself with this, if there's anything you can do to avoid it, and it remains the blessing of this disease that the way you avoid it is simple stuff that we can all do that doesn't cost any money. But the will to continue doing that is very, very hard to sustain, it turns out. Yeah. It's particularly easy on a day like today where we in New York are snowed in. <laughs> Today's a good day for isolation. That's very right. good day for isolation. Yeah, we'll see how long it lasts. Um, I want to talk about your show, which you're back hosting now. Mm. There's been a running conversation in the cable news industry recently about what comes next. Trump has dominated the news for the last five years. And in doing so, he's also fueled a boom in uh, ratings for uh, TV news networks uh, and also in subscriptions to newspapers. Your show, The Rachel Maddow Show, uh, on MSNBC is done particularly well. Uh, you averaged, I saw 
yesterday more than 3 million viewers each night this year, which is a pretty astonishing audience. Are you worried what happens next to the media and to that audience when Trump is no longer president and when the Trump show is almost over? You know, it's interesting. I have learned, I feel like I don't, mm, I am humble in terms of what I can predict about audiences. So I will, I will <laughs> just put a big asterisk and caveat on, on whatever I'm going to say from the beginning. But I've sort of learned that if you try to serve people what you think they want, you will fail. And so if you program your news show based on what you think is going to attract the most audience, you're almost always wrong. And the only way to do this, I feel like that um, works both for the audience and for the staff and for you as a person who has to do this and account for your work in terms of your ethics and all those things is to do what you think is important. And people can tell more than there, I think people are attracted to any one particular storyline. I mean, that happens every once in a while, but I think people are attracted to real news told honestly from an authentic place by somebody who not only is interested in the thing they are talking about, but understands it well. And you sort of can't fake it. Um, people are, I mean, the something about television tells you whether or not the person who's talking to you through that screen means what they say and understands what they're talking about. And so that's it. That's sort of all I can do. I've just decided to stop overthinking any of that. And I don't know what next crazy thing is going to come along in the news. I'll be there to cover it when it happens. But <laughs> whether it has, um, you know, Mr. Trump attached to it, I, I don't, I can't predict and I, I don't really care. Yeah. So it does seem like he's going to be a pretty big presence in uh, the Republican Party, at least Maybe. for a few years to come. Yeah, it's, it's unclear. It's, yeah. it's hard to say whether or not after the inauguration of Joe Biden, he is sort of irrelevant. Yeah. But do, do you I don't want to make you predict here, but do you think he'll remain a character on your show or do you plan on ignoring him when he's no longer in a position of power? I mean, I haven't made him much of a character for these past four years. I mean, mm -hmm. it was sort of a, uh, it's a decision I've actually talked about on the show because I kind of want to, I felt like it required an explanation, but we don't, for example, play very much tape of him. Um, we don't cover live events with the president. And we, we didn't start out that way. Um, we started off covering him like a normal president, but then it turned out that he was saying f false things all the time. And then mm -hmm. you have to come on and clean. If somebody gives false information on the TV show that has your name on it, you have a responsibility to come out and say, I I'm sorry that I broadcast that. What that person said isn't true. What the truth is. And that's just a mess. Like, don't do that. It, it, it don't set yourself up for that. And so we haven't had Trump as a figure, as a person, um, prominently displayed on, on between the hours of 9 and 10 Eastern on MSNBC. The effect that he's had on the Republican Party and what he's effectuated in terms of policy and, and politics on the Republican side of things, sure. But him as a person, eh. And so I don't know about what Trump at Mar-a-Lago um, can do versus mm -hmm. Trump at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I mean, we'll see if he continues to dominate Republican politics, we'll still cover Republican politics. But yeah. him as a person, it seems to me like he's retiring now and maybe we'll just say goodbye. Yeah, and I do think the media could fall into this trap, I feel, of, you know, Biden does promise to be or seems to be some something of a quiet force in politics compared to the last four years. Mm -hmm. And I think the media could fall into this trap of not getting enough, you know, sensational news out of Biden. And so turning their gaze to Trump and covering him, you know, exhaustively when he's no longer in a position of power. Right. Um, I, I think that that's a trap that you're 
probably yeah. fine avoiding. <laughs> or some other sensational thing. I mean, I've been through eras in cable news. I mean, it is the war on Christmas season, after all. Sure. Could, no, <laughs> you can always resolve that yet. every year. And then war on Easter, and then war on my birthday, and war yeah. on whatever. Right? You can always sensationalize <laughs> Forever that. Forever war, yeah. There is there's definitely an effort. You know, there's always an effort every year to do that. Um, and, and there's also, you know, people have made, uh, if, if you're looking for sort of sensationalized sort of um, gossamer footage of something that doesn't really matter, you can make it out of individual figures in the news, but you can also make it out of, out of, out of topics that don't deserve that kind of coverage. I mean, we've seen, uh, one of the things I'm interested to see is, is in the right-wing media, if they follow the Trump law and order thing and the Republican party, you know, Democrats are gonna burn down your cities thing with a sensationalized um, long arc of coverage about mm. crime that tries to, um, in a sort of Nixonian way, freak people out about crime, and if that becomes the staple of cable news. I mean, we'll see. I'll, I'll keep doing what I do, though. Yeah. Uh, one thing uh, I wanted to ask about, since we're talking about cable news, is a former colleague of yours, uh, Tucker Carlson, used to have a show on MSNBC. Yeah. You frequently appeared on it, and now he's a very popular host at Fox News. He holds a lot of influence over the current president, which is a pretty astonishing thing that I don't think has happened uh, very frequently in history. Uh, What's your opinion on Tucker Carlson now? I don't watch his show. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And so I know this sounds like a Republican senator being like, I didn't see that tweet. I mean, I'm aware, <laughs> I'm aware of what Tucker's been doing. Listen, Tucker has been, um, I, think the, I think the thing that Tucker gets a knock for that he doesn't deserve is this idea that he's evolved and changed in some radical mm. new direction. Tucker has always been that guy. He okay. is legitimately that guy. He is not faking it. He comes by his beliefs and his convictions and even his tone of voice quite naturally. He is not mm. putting it on. And so I do think that, you know, if you go back to the early days of Tucker when we were in that Secaucus studio for, I think it was an 11 p.m. live show where I was on a <laughs> panel with talk show. I mean, it was crazy. Um, he's the same guy. And so what I think the rise of Tucker says is that, I mean, he's been in cable news all of this time, and he's been mm. doing the same thing and articulating the same theses all this time. The Republican Party and conservative viewing audiences are latched onto that point of view now and like it, or at least, mm. you know, have, I think, broadly speaking through the Trump years. So sort of, I, I think, you know, as good as Tucker is what he is at what he does, he has been doing the same thing all along in much the same way that I've been doing the same thing all along. Like if you, if you look back at me on Tucker's show in 2005 or whenever that was, and you look at Tucker in 2005, we're still the same people. But I think the appetite for what we bring to offer has waxed and waned over the years um, with our cable news fortunes. So it's not so much that Tucker Carlson has changed, it's that the current, I guess, state of the Republican Party is now more realigned with his political beliefs and ideological beliefs. Yeah, and a president got into office who articulated many of the same, yes. mo many of the most controversial things that Tucker has long advocated. Yeah. And that were most sort of hot in terms of um, riling people up and attracting controversy and attracting attention. Tucker's always been saying those things, but yeah. when you've got the president saying those things in his own words, but with the same ideas, then there is going to be a sort of a syncopation, I think, where yeah. those two and, notes are going to play off each other. In a way that was perhaps like a little less intellectual, a little more emotional, um, in a way that I guess riled up, you know, a, a certain segment of the Republican well, Party. Well, president. I mean, the president, mm -hmm. for all his success as a communicator, is not very articulate. Mm. Um, he's not like traditionally erudite, whereas Tucker is. And yeah. so to, it, it is, it's a powerful thing to hear 
somebody with Tucker's delivery and capability as a TV communicator articulating the same ideas that the president, forgive me, is sort of braying about mm. uh, on Twitter, all caps, on, you know, misspelled and all those things. But you put those two things together and it can resonate in a way that moves people and becomes, in, in that case, I think, a very powerful political force. I mean, what you're talking about in terms of Tucker having influence over the president is a is a remarkable thing. I'm not sure that's what we're trained for as cable news people, but it happens. <laughs> yeah, being being foreign policy advisors to presidents is not typically the, the role of a cable news host. But yeah. um, you, you say you don't watch Tucker show. Do you watch any uh, Fox News, CNN? Do you watch cable news, the competition at all, or you, you keep it to your own show? I don't really have, there's two things. First of all, I don't, I don't really have time. Okay. <laughs> like I, <laughs> Good answer. The show on the air is really hard. But the other thing is that I'm, um, I worry about uh, subconsciously aping other mm. people's presentation or even their arguments. Like I try not, for example, like I don't read a lot of opinion columnists um, or people who are doing analysis of the same kind of news stories that I'm doing analysis of. I try not to, um, bury myself in people in the work of people who are doing similar work to me because I would like to be original and I don't want to get involved in any sort of groupthink cycle. And so it's, I mean, I, I, I end up watching stuff on my own network because my colleagues are covering things that I'm also covering. And sometimes that, that, that work meshes. Um, but I don't, I try, I try basically to stay in my silo. <laughs> and, and I think one thing that's, quite siloed about your show compared to the competition maybe on CNN and on, on Fox News is that like, let's say Chris Cuomo on CNN, his show is like the, the biggest moments from his show is where he'll bring on a Trump administration official and have this incredibly combative interview that's basically like a boxing match mm -hmm. for, you know, 20 minutes. And your show really doesn't do that. Um, and it's obviously proved incredibly successful avoiding that, uh, <laughs> that like sort of, I guess, method of cable news um, programming. It, is that's a is, that's a deliberate decision, I assume. Like, what's behind that? Well, we all, I mean, we all make our own decisions. The one thing that I did decide sort of categorically at the outset of getting my own show is that I didn't want to do um, the thing that I think of as like the Punch and Judy show, where you bring mm. on someone from the right and someone from the left and you make no material. Crossfire. Uh, yeah, you, you make no <laughs> you know, material contribution to the thing you're discussing, except the fact that you establish that there are different opinions and then watch them fight. Like, yeah. I don't, I have, I have been Punch and I have been Judy. <laughs> in my it's incredibly part. satisfying to watch. <laughs> But like, I don't, it doesn't help. It's, it's, yeah. you know, heat and not light. And so we do, we have this mantra on my show, right? Increase the amount of useful information in the world. And that means don't book liars. Don't show fighting for the sake of fighting. Don't put on people who have to fight with each other just for airtime in order to jump in. Like I tend to almost always book one guest at a time. My, I feel like I have a sort of compact with my audience where if I'm putting somebody on the air, it is because I believe that they have something to tell you that you may not already know and that you can trust their take on it, or you can trust their knowledge that they bring to it. And so I, I mean, you can, it's, it's fun to have fights with people. Every once in a while, I'll do it. You know, sometimes it, that's, that's the best way to illuminate something that's going mm. wrong. Um, but most of all, I try to bring on people who I have faith in, who I think can convey something beyond what I can tell you from my understanding of the news. Got it. Let's talk about your new book. Bagman. Yeah. Uh, it's about Spira Agnew, the uh, often overlooked but uh, incredibly corrupt uh, vice president of Richard Nixon. And it's based on a very popular podcast that you did with Michael Yarvitz, which was also very timely because of parallels between the Agnew crisis and the current administration. Could you 
run us through those similarities a bit, or perhaps like why it's a timely story, the story of Spira Agnew. It, I think the reason that people have been have liked the story, like it's it's I didn't think that Bagman was good. Like literally, I did a seven part intense long <laughs> podcast miniseries about Spiro Agnew. Like who thought that was going to take and off? And it got like, like 10 million downloads or something. <laughs> I think I mean, part of it is that I think we had cool music and that helped. Mm. But, um, OK, good to know for this podcast. <laughs> the the surface um, and I think surprising parallels between Agnew as a politician and a propagandist um, and Trump, the way that Agnew talks versus the way that Trump talks, the, the targets that he picked, the deliberate outrage that he stoked, the way that he uh, absolutely berated and tried to destroy the media while also just using that as his superpower, using media attention as his superpower. I think it was heart, not heartening, but like, orienting for a lot of people to realize that Trump isn't the first American in the White House who has done that. Mm. Um, but then ultimately, I think the deeper import of the story for this era is not the bad guys, is not that Agnew was a bad guy in a lot of the same ways that Trump was. Um, it's the good guys. It's that the, um, the system worked, that the Justice Department prosecutors from the low level, you know, 30 something line prosecutors in Maryland who stumbled upon his crimes up through their US attorney who was pressured by everybody up to George H.W. Bush and the White House and his own brother who was a senator and all this stuff, up to the attorney general. Kleindienst was the attorney general at the beginning of this and he was a bad guy in this, trying to pressure this investigation to go away. Elliot Richardson ultimately becomes the attorney general who brings it to four. Though the, the heroic nonpartisan strength of character and patriotism that those guys brought to settling the Agnew matter, which really was a scary thing. Um, that is the story that I feel like is most instructive for us now because it's the thing that so many times we didn't get with Trump. And it's the reason that I think the Trump era is more of a tragedy than the Agnew era. Yeah, because I mean, I think for anyone that would want to see accountability for things that uh, Trump did over the course of the four years, you, you didn't really get that except at the ballot box when he was voted yeah. out of office. Yeah. Uh, and I think a, a big part of that, and this goes back to the Spiro Agnew uh, case, was the Justice Department policy uh, that a sitting president can't be indicted. Mm -hmm. And that loomed pretty large over the Mueller investigation. Now, Trump is set to leave office, and there's a lot of talk about whether he'll be investigated by Biden's Justice Department or by the Manhattan DA, there's sort of ongoing investigations. Um, do you think he faces more legal trouble than Spiro Agnew did after leaving office? It's a super interesting question. And I think a legitimately open question because yeah. we've already got line prosecutors at SDNY who have said that it was the president who directed the commission of those campaign finance felonies for which Michael Cohen went to jail and mm. the president is named as individual one. Um, and you know, that doesn't go, he's an unindicted co-conspirator already in multiple felonies. Um, I don't know. And I, and I, and I actually, I, I feel like I don't know what the right thing is for the country. I'm not advocating that the president, the former president be prosecuted, I'm not even advocating that the OLC policy that says a president, a sitting president can't be prosecuted should be overturned. But I do think while we are considering these things as live matters, for the country and the rule of law at the end of this presidency, we should be aware that that policy, that Justice Department policy that has been Trump's jail, get out of jail free card came from a mess around this <laughs> thing. It, it was not like inscribed on tablets by the founding fathers. It came out of a hodgepodge 
piece of work OLC memo that was specifically designed to try to get Agnew out while protecting Nixon because they were both felons. Like this did not come from a pristine place and should be seen as something from on high that should be revered. I, it should, I think it should be revisited. I don't know what the right outcome is, but I know that we probably shouldn't be using Spiro Agnew's felonious past as the basis for all future presidential immunity, <laughs> which it actually is what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's not a good precedent to set that, you know, a president can get away with anything because, you know, Spiro Agnew had, had his little crisis. Because <laughs> yes, um, he was taking, you know, envelopes full of cash, in, cash. The, <laughs> in the vice president's office. Therefore, yeah. feel free to murder someone. <laughs> like that, yeah. That's, that, like, that can't be right. Yeah. The original sin being like comical corruption. Yes. <laughs> um, and it is, you, you raise a good point there. It's a separate question about whether it's a good idea for Biden's uh, Justice Department to go and prosecute a former president. Like, I think and even people that want to see Trump, you know, thrown in jail can acknowledge that that is, there's something a little bit un, unsettling about that, mm -hmm. about the next president uh, prosecuting the, the previous one. Um, well, I mean, we never before had a president who was like, lock him up, lock her up, lock him up. Yeah. Every time he disagreed with somebody, they should be in prison. Let's say things go weird over the next four years and Trump is pre elected president in 2024. And we've set the precedent that former presidents should uh, you know, be. And I mean, you think that <laughs> Trump is going to have an independent, if, if that happened, he'd have an independent Justice Department who would you know, look at this just as a matter of the law and definitely wouldn't be influenced by him. And I mean, Come on. Yeah. So it's, I, I, do not, I do not envy the incoming Biden administration, the decision about that. And I, I do wonder if that's part of the reason that we've been waiting a long time to find out who's gonna be Biden's AG. Um, mm -hmm. Is that part of it is that they've got to reckon with those, those decisions now. Biden's already said he will not pardon Trump. So Trump was a one-term president which doesn't tend to have a particularly large influence, right? One, one, Single-term presidents don't ha have a, a huge place in history, in the history of, of uh, American presidents. Mm. How do you think history will remember Trump? I know it's a broad question, but uh, <laughs> if you can, if you have one, you know, <laughs> one great line about that, yeah. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> You're like, give me something pithy. Yeah. Just concise and pithy, I, I'd be perfect. I don't know. <laughs> if you've ever seen the Rachel Maddow show, you'll know that concise is not my thing. <laughs> I, the answer is, I don't know. Uh, I mean, a part of the legacy will depend on how he goes out. I mean, if he resigns before Inauguration Day so Mike Pence can be president for five minutes so that Pence can pardon him because he's mm -hmm. worried that a self-pardon might not self might not execute well in the courts. I mean that that will loom very large in the way that history um, history tells his tale. I, I mean, I think that the um, the effort by Republicans, including outgoing Attorney General William Barr, to try to spin the Russia investigation as if that was some sort of scandal on the Democrat side rather than something that Trump is going to drag with him into history is an effort that's going to fail. Um, I don't think there is anything that Trump has done as president that will look good um, in the in the historical in in the historical arc. I think the thing that'll look good about the Trump era when we look back at this time in American history is that the American people voted him out. What's so fascinating? I was speaking to um, previous guest of mine was a legal analyst and uh, Ellie Honig, and mm, he was speaking great. about he is great, yeah, and he was talking about how a lot of Trump's policies were really just kind of hastily cobbled together executive orders that were not particularly well thought out, particularly because like a lot of them were passed when it was Steve Bannon and uh, Steve Miller running the show, mm -hmm. um, who are not particularly 
you know, experts uh, in government. <laughs> uh, and so they'll, it'll all be very easy to repeal. Um, yeah. Do you do you see that as sort of like the, the top priority? Like, do you think that's a good top priority for the Biden the incoming Biden administration? Yeah, I to mean, just really focus on repealing travel ban, uh, refugee caps, um, stuff like that. Yeah, and I think that's a good insight actually in terms of governance. That when you govern in a in a slapdash way, your efforts can be undone. And I think you see this sort of panicked effort at the end of the Trump administration to try to per make permanent some of the things they've done. They're really turning up to 11, this the burrowing in phenomenon where you try to get your political appointees into civil service jobs where they can't easily be fired. But even that they're doing in a ham-handed way, like the stuff that they've done at the Pentagon can all be undone the first day that Trump's new secretary, excuse me, that Biden's new secretary of defense is there. I mean, Trump signed one piece of substantial legislation um, which was this infinitely regressive tax bill. Um, and I think that, you know, fighting about tax policy is actually is a normal part of governance. And the Democrats, depending on how much power they have in Congress, will do what they can to pass a more progressive rather than regressive tax bill. And I think that will, that will sort of have to be unwound in the normal co course. But I think Ellie's right that, um, that a lot of what Trump did is was done basically by bumper sticker, and he just take that bumper sticker off the car. I mean, I mean, the like, is there anything that Trump did that is that the Biden administration is going to want to keep? I honestly think no. Like the like Trump made one good Trump the Trump administration made one good decision this year, which was to not go ahead with the pebble mine that was going to decimate Bristol Bay in Australia in, in Alaska, which is the the feeding the, the breeding ground for the most important population of salmon on the globe. But the whole reason that was a good decision is because they were going to approve the pebble mine and then they stopped. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> was going to do terrible things and then approach. didn't. That counts as their best policy decision. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much for this and keep up the good work at, at Media. You guys are doing great work. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to the interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and look out for our coverage of my conversation with Rachel Maddow on Mediate.com.